and unsurpassed penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas having it to see and listen to to remember and accept i vow to taste the truth of the tathagata's words i'm going to speak a bit about the fourth clear mind precept i vow not to lie and then uh Kelly's going to talk about the fifth one, not intoxicating self or others. Full moon ceremony that we do, that second part, which is from Dogen. The Dharma wheel turns from the beginning. There is neither surplus nor lack. The sweet dew saturates all and harvests the truth. So I'm going to start with uh, what Rob Anderson had to say. All speech based on self-concern is false or harmful speech. And speaking the truth naturally arises from selflessness. When we are caught in self-protection and self-promotion, we cannot speak the truth. In the end, true speaking is the only way out of the bondage to self-concern. So we might knowingly lie if we're feeling vulnerable or need to protect ourselves. Sometimes it might not be fully conscious lie at this time that we say it, because we might be trying to deceive ourselves a bit as well. In the Heart of Being, Daidulori speaks about a different aspect. He says, under certain circumstances, if you tell the truth, you're violating the precepts. Someone is critically injured in an auto accident, gasping for breath, asking, will I be all right? If you say no, you're going to die. That person may give up right there. If you say you're doing fine, it may be a lie, but it provides hope for the person to work with. Out of reverence for life and compassion, sometimes we lie. But if that lie is to protect ourselves, we violate the precept. So I like the way that he summarizes this saying, out of reverence for life and compassion, sometimes we lie. But if that lie is to protect ourselves, we violate the precept. Are we speaking for the benefit of others or for ourselves? It's kind of a good way to check in, I think. We might lie to spare the feelings of someone we care about or to protect a small child from information that they're not ready to handle. Lori goes on to say, truth and falsity always exist within a specific framework. Our ways of seeing are very different. What's true for one person is false for another. So in Portland right now, there's a lot of disagreement about what to do with the crime, crime in the city. And I imagine in, in most cities, there's these arguments going on. And I think for the most part, they're honest disagreements. Some might be seen as self-serving, some might be seen as thinking more of others, some might seem kind of naive. You know, there's a lot of different viewpoints. Reb Anderson refers to an oceanic truth. He says, I can never see beyond my own circle of water. And yet being aware that my circle is just a circle and not the ocean, I am liberated from it. The ultimate meaning is that your truth at this moment is just that, it's your truth. To make more or less of it would not be upright. When I first read this, I thought about my own circle of water to be something that I'm aware of in the midst of this ocean of truth. 
that's beyond my limited view. But then I was kind of wondering how much of the circle that's within my ability to see am I really seeing? So I'm sure I'd miss a lot. But if I'm aware that my thoughts and opinions are all based on a limited view, I don't need to hold them so tightly. Diane Rizzuto, in speaking on this uh, precept, said, this precept is variously cast as not lying, not engaging in false speech, or as right speech. But however the precept is stated, it encourages us to consider carefully the very nature of deception. And by doing so, it directs us to what is real and true. So the very nature of deception. I can de deceive myself with thoughts and daydreams. I can get myself all worked up about something that might go wrong before anything's even happened. You know, just by telling myself stories, I'm engaged in self-deception. When Diane was asked during a Dharma talk, what is honest speech? She answered, listen, brook babbles along the stones. That's a great example. Before I started reading the commentaries, I was mainly thinking of the relative straightforward interpretation of this precept, like saying something that I knew was untrue or omitting information in order to deceive someone for my own benefit. And of course, it is about those things. But the precept is also about the limited and dualistic nature of language itself and our own limitations. You know, words are symbols standing in for experiences or abstractions of reality. Because we tend to live so much through words, I think we might tend to forget that words are not the reality that we experience and we try to speak about. Bodhidharma said, self-nature is inconceivably wondrous and the Dharma is beyond all expression. Not speaking even a single word is called the precept of refraining from telling lies. That seems simple. The Dharma, or we could say the reality of life, is beyond all expression, beyond all words. As soon as we open our mouths, we're speaking dualistically. Words could never reach that total oceanic truth. According to Daidu, Lori, self-nature cannot be described with words no matter how hard we try to explain it. We speak a falsehood. What is self-nature? What is this deeply mysterious life energy that animates us? Daido says no matter how hard we try to explain it, we speak a falsehood. Words are not reality. He goes on to say, and so it is said the Buddha 47 years of teaching did not utter a single word. Everything is inconceivably wondrous self-nature. 47 years the Buddha did not utter a single word. According to the sutras, the Buddha spoke quite a few words, it seems. Daidu Lori says those teachings of the Buddha go beyond our dualistic perceptions of the universe. The Buddha taught meditation. When we practice Zazen in order to help clarify the mind, we let go of thoughts to directly perceive our little circle of the ocean with the understanding that our perception is limited and to leave room for Bodhidharma's not knowing or don't know mind. That's all I got. So if anyone has, um, there's time before Kelly goes, if anyone has comments or questions. Steve?
That was actually the precept that I worked with when I was sewing my rakasu. And coincidentally, Kate chose that one too. We ind each independently chose that one. We sewed at the same time. Who else did you say? Did you say someone else also? Oh, yeah, Kate. We sewed at the okay. same time. We both coincidentally chose the same precept. Oh, I see. Okay. But what I found myself and still find myself working with a lot when it comes to that precept is authenticity. Not so much literally saying something that's true or not, not true, but, uh, you know, like I can tell if I'm being more cheerful than I really feel, for example. Mm -hmm. And I can usually tell, at least I think I can tell when somebody else isn't being authentic, although it's harder for me to tell in what way they're not being authentic. You know, I can't tell if it's because the person, unless I know them fairly well. But um, yeah, well, what, um, do you have some thoughts on, on that authenticity? What I uh, kind of rely on, sometimes I'll say something, and if I'm really paying attention, I'll notice I'm a little tense, or there's some kind of physical sensation or something that kind of body knowledge and uh, I trust that I know if, if I'm feeling that something's off or something I said maybe I shouldn't have said or shouldn't have said it that way or I think that would go along with uh, not being authentic I don't know you you experience that I do I'm tense a lot of the time so maybe I'm not authentic a lot of the time <laughs> <laughs> thanks Steve I think you are authentically tense. <laughs> when I think of lying or fibbing or BSing or whatever you want to call it, it's usually to protect this one. Like I don't want to um, admit something or that's, that's a common one. And if I think about it, I feel kind of bad, like, ooh, that wasn't being honest. But sometimes I don't think about it, and it's just like I put up the armor there, and I didn't do that, or what do you mean I forgot to do something? <laughs> I didn't say I was going to do that. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on why we lie or fib or BS or are not are not honest. Uh, well, I think uh, it's, you know, Reb says basically what you said that it's self-protection generally. Or uh, you know, I know there's been situations where I'll I'll get invited to go do something, and I don't really want to do that because there's something else I'd rather do, but I can't just say, well, I'd rather do this other thing, so I make up some excuse why I can't go. And I don't feel too good about that. It, has, it doesn't come up a lot. But <laughs> and we deceive ourselves. Yeah. And that's... Wait, that counts as a, as a lie? Yeah, I'm afraid so. Uh-oh. <laughs> Kate? Thank you, Liam. I, I liked how you covered the, the micro of... I tell a lie or I deceive myself or others out of self-protection, but then to the larger, 
the bigger idea and the precept, which is the truth with a capital T, <laughs> the, the bigger truth and to think about what that is and how, I'm not sure I agree that the moment we open our mouths, we speak falsehood because we're incapable of, it, it sounded like that's what I think it was Dido Lowry was saying, it's so vast and the Dharma is so wondrous that anything we say is a lie. I don't know. I don't know. I think great art, music, I think it communicates some of that kind of truth, maybe, that can't be expressed just in ordinary day-to-day -day speech. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think music and art communicate much more directly than words, you know. Words are things we have to learn and kind of agree on, and I find them to be very clunky and lacking in specificity. Translating words from different languages. I was just hearing recently someone saying the word shunyata, which we translate as emptiness. Rupaya Zen Center translates it as boundlessness. And the person that was talking and knew more about these things said, but neither one of those words really quite get it either. <laughs> It's, it's the nature of language, you know, we've invented this tool to try to share our experiences. But they're, we don't want to get hung up on the words, they're just, they're just symbols for something else, they're symbols for an experience. So in that sense, they're, you know, I, I wouldn't call them a lie, but they're somewhat deceptive. maybe. Mm -hmm. Like the finger pointing at the moon. Exactly, yeah. Or Mel's uh, stick trying to point to something with the dog, and the dog will just look at the stick instead of what you're pointing at. <laughs> That's a good one. Thank you. Uh, Jody? Uh, thanks, William, for your summary of uh, this precept. I was thinking about delusion and how the role it plays in my experience of dealing with you know, untruthfulness. And it seems that early on, you know, I developed the habit of, of course, self-protection and uh, not telling truths because at the, at the uh, acknowledgement of a particular truth in, in my family, uh, there was a punishment there. It always wasn't quite equal with the actual crime committed, so to speak. And so, you know, early on learned that a truth can actually cause me harm. And even though I was being asked and told to tell the truth, it was the right thing to do. The consequence of telling the truth was actually not okay for me. The experience of punishment that lasted for a long time with me until when I got into a 12 step program and um, I would find myself lying about just the most ridiculous things. And I got into the habit of every time I found myself saying an untruth, I would say out loud, I don't know why I said that, that's not true. And I had to do a lot of work with like why this automatic response would come out. And behind a lot of it, I mean, at that point now was delusional because the consequence of a truth in this case did not lead to, you know, potentially a physical abuse. It was, maybe it was somebody might think of me in a way I didn't want them to, or 
maybe they didn't think anything at all, but the delusion was there that something bad would happen uh, based on the history of that very young um, experience that became a real part of my core. So there's a lot of work around that. Um, and so I don't know, it just made me think about this when you, when you were speaking about how delusion plays that role. Often it's, you know, fear that kind of is, seems to be the, the, the behind an untruth, a fear of something. And, and I read somewhere that, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing unreal exists. So essentially it's like delusion. So I have to do a lot of work around mindfulness around like what's like delusional thinking in terms of, you know, not being uh, my true authentic self and why that is. And, and I will say also, I do think there are occasions when, when lies to protect oneself are extremely important. We live in a, a world where violence happens to women, uh, to queer people, people of color. And um, I think that I would often be willing to break that precept to protect myself in that particular case and instance. And I certainly wouldn't look upon somebody poorly if, if they need to do that for themselves. Uh, but the overarching concept of not lying, I think, is useful, and um, it is something I, I continue to work with. So, thank you. Well, you know, Daidu Laurie, I mean, he talks about sometimes telling the truth is violating the precept, and he gives the example of protecting someone else, but I, that also applies to ourselves if it's going to lead to some harm. Uh, I think that's maintaining the precept. Of course, if we're in situations where we have to do that a lot, it can become habituated, like you were saying, and be applied in places where maybe it's not useful. But it sounds like you've you've worked with that, and you, you can see that. That's you know, our practice. You know, that's our practice is about seeing our thoughts and seeing our patterns. Yeah. Thank you for that. Any more? Uh, Kelly. Kelly has precept to talk about. Thank you, Liam. That was great because as, as you were talking about that, it occurred to me that, that the precept you're speaking about today is, is um, how not to kind of cloud your communication. And so it's, it, it's delusion going out and mine, mine is sort of delusion coming in, how, how not to uh, cloud what you perceive. It didn't occur to me until exactly this moment, but um, that, that works out really nicely. So I'm doing the, the fifth clear mind precept, which is I vow not to intoxicate self or others. I've discussed this precept with, I'm sure everyone in the room knows I, I'm an alcoholic. I've been in recovery for about 10 years. So I've discussed this precept with people and people can get really defensive about it. And so I just want to kind of say from the onset here, I lie all the time. I steal stuff in, in one way or another. I steal stuff. I'm sure I misuse sexuality in some way or another. I know I certainly have. I want to make sure that we all understand that no one's being judged as we go through these precepts. If, if, uh, if you lie or steal or drink or whatever, these are, these are guidelines to work towards potentially, or to interpret however you want to. I just say that kind of from the onset, because I've run into people getting very, very angry talking about this precept. I was thinking, when, I, when Liam asked me which one we were each going to do, I said, well, I'll do intoxicate self or others, because I know something about that. 
pitch. That's always the wrong choice. Never don't do that. It always it, it's always deeper than you think. It's always more difficult than you think. Well, maybe that's exactly the right choice then, because it's deeper and more difficult than you think. I used to go to this group in uh, Berkeley for years where we would sit around and um, we would drink wine and read Finnegan's Wake out loud, which was a lot of fun, actually. And the guy that hosted it, who was a Berkeley professor, used to say, because Finnegan's Wake, you know, the vast majority of the words in it are coined. They're not, they're not English words. And he said, you know, you're really in trouble when you get to the sections of the books where the words are all real. So you're, you know, at, at, at the point at which you recognize what you're saying, that's when it gets deep. And so I should have thought that when I moved into Intoxicate Self or Others, because I think I, I thought I was recognizing what it was saying. You know, some, a, a lot of the versions of the precepts say just specifically, I vow not to drink or take drugs or encourage other people to do that. I believe that is part of this. I believe that what the precept says is don't drink or take drugs or encourage people to do it. A lot of people disagree with that, um, but that's how I read it. I think it's only part of it though. As this kind of series of, about the precepts have gone on, I hope that we're kind of all sort of embracing this idea that interpretation is part of this process. Also failure is part of this process. We're failing at these precepts all this all the time and we're, we're succeeding at them as often as we can. But, but failure is not a bad thing. It is, it's what we're going through. I also heard someone say once who, who was a, a, a Buddhist teacher, he was saying that uh, you know living in the real world under my conditions I cannot always do as the Buddha taught. Yet, I must acknowledge that to the extent I don't, I will suffer. And I think about that a lot. You know, with, with this precept, with lying, with stealing, some I'm failing at them a lot. And I'm trying not to fail at them. But sometimes causes and conditions cause it make my life work in such a way that I will struggle with the precept. If I do not follow the precept, I will in some way suffer. Uh, so I kind of say all this to say, to, to, to cushion this a little bit and say, everybody give yourself a break. We're all failing. We're all succeeding. We're, we're really doing our best. That said, I really do believe that what this says is in some way is don't drink, don't do drugs, don't encourage people to. But what I do want to do is take it a little further. Uh, I don't believe the precepts are never as cut and dry as just don't do this one thing and hey, you're good. Here's a question. Is the actual root of this a prohibition on intoxicants, or is it a prohibition on the state of intoxication? Is it about drinking, or is it about clouding your mind? If it's about clouding your mind, then we have to add a lot of things to this list of intoxicants. So we're not just talking about drugs and alcohol. We're talking about coffee, 
which I had some today, uh, smartphones, which television, um, you know, I encouraged you to think of all of the things that uh, that are in your life that cloud your mind, that sort of distract you from seeing reality. You know, we all think about reading as, as an incredibly positive thing, and I think it is, but it's speculated that much of our facility for memory was lost when we started writing things down. We altered our consciousness when we started writing things down. Was that clouding our mind? Maybe. Later, uh, Cicero, the Roman senator, started uh, trying to formulate ways to make our memory massive. He, he started uh, writing about building memory palaces, which he took from what he thought was ancient Egypt, though it probably wasn't. Was he being delusional? Was he clouding how he saw the world by affecting his mind in that way? Oh, there we go. I got I lost my place. <laughs> so we could swing back and forth on this forever. We're always going to have ideas and stuff and things that obscure the way our minds work. So maybe the problem is that we've got all these things in our lives. And I, I don't know. I don't have I don't have any real definitive knowledge about any of this. But we have all these things that potentially cloud our minds. So maybe our problem is the attachment to those things. So we can easily say, easily, that's that's a fun word to use. We can say that being attached to these things or being attached even to ideas can cause these things to become outsized in our mind. They can obscure our clarity. So is then being attached itself an intoxicant? And is that what the precept is warning us against? It's, it's funny, Liam, that you used the Bodhidharma quote, because I, I used one from the, that exact same series where uh, he said, purportedly, self-nature is subtle and mysterious in the realm of the intrinsically pure Dharma. Not giving rise to delusions is called the precept of not giving or taking drugs. That's really interesting. I'll read it again. Self-nature is subtle and mysterious in the realm of the intrinsically pure Dharma. Not giving rise to delusions is called the precept of not giving or taking drugs. So anything I can do not to encourage the rise of delusions, according to Bodhidharma, is adherence to the precept. So I guess what I ought to do is get rid of my phone that's right here, my computers. My dogs have been running in and out of the room. I don't know if you can hear them barking, but they are clearly clouding my mind at the moment. My computer, my uh, Advil that I took because my back was hurting, that's probably clouding my mind. Uh, books that are behind me, sugar. Basically get rid of everything that's not sitting and then I can adhere to this precept. But that's pretty extreme. And even if I did give up everything, I still don't really have control of the, over whether those delusions rise or not. So I'm still in constant violation of this precept. So maybe again, we go back to attachment. The delusions are going to come. I don't think there's really anything I can do to stop that from happening. But I can pay attention to what I do and I, I can let go of them when they rise. So maybe delusions are the essence of intoxication. Uh, but let's go about it a different way. What if the purpose of the fifth precept is to help you honestly confront 
all of the other precepts. So we've talked about the precept a little, a little bit philosophically, but what if we decided to start using the precept as a tool? So a tool with which we could clarify the other precepts. So it seems like a really useful way to think about it. Maybe this precept is a large part of what we mean when we say clear mind, when we're calling them the clear mind precepts. And I thought what I, would kind of be a, an interesting thing to do, we can definitely do questions at the end if, if you folks want to, but I thought it might be interesting to go through some of the precepts that we've already been through in this course and you know, think about things that obscure our understanding of them or obscure our adherence to them. So what distracts our clear mind at looking at some of these. So that I just kind of hit the, the ones that we've done so far. So the first uh, four. And just see if we could use this as a tool to unlock more things about them. So um, so I'm going to ask people here if if you would weigh in, if you have any ideas. Can you think of anything as far as the precept of vowing not to kill? Um, and again, when we talked about kill, we talked about killing time, we talked about killing relationships, we talked about killing communicate, communication with each other, we talked about, um, you know, actual physical hurting. Is, is there anything that you can think of that intoxicates or clouds your mind in a way that would cause you to potentially violate that precept? And I have thoughts to get us started if no one has any ideas, but let me give you a few seconds. Yes, Steve. Well, it comes to my mind are food attachments and food attachments either way. So one, yeah. um, some, some people are vegans or vegetarians mm -hmm. and um, maybe they have good reason to be, but that can lead to um, social awkwardness at the least and it can even lead to it can it can kill a relationship if you've if um if a person is so stringent that they will never go to somebody else's party or or something like that because they're afraid of what they'll they'll serve and on the other hand somebody who's um uh could be attached to eating meat it's actually bad for them their cholesterol is way over the roof but they're attached to that and they're slowly killing themselves. So food choices are one way where I think that it's, there's no absolute whether one should be, in my opinion, whether one should be a vegan or one should be a meat eater, but um, you can really, really food is so powerful and it really can lead to so many attachments. And I'm sure you can think of other examples with food that relate yeah. to killing ourselves and others and our relations. Oh, that's that's such a good one, Steve. That that wasn't even the first thing that popped into my mind when I was thinking about this the other day when I was kind of jotting it down. But yours is much better than what I came up with. It's absolutely right. Um, and and you know, in some in some ways, like we talk about like traditional intoxicants, and we talk about things like like you know drugs or alcohol. Um, food resembles that a lot. Um, food does a lot of things to us chemically. It's partially the reason that we get so obsessed with it, um, aside from just liking it and being familiar with it. So yeah, I think that's a really great one. Let me uh, let me go. I'll jump down to the next one. Uh, can we think of anything that that um, clouds our mind when we're thinking about uh, 
not uh, trying vowing not to take what is not given so stealing potentially uh is, is there anything that would cause you to um to take something that, that wasn't yours uh you know so some something that that has that has uh i don't know if i want to use the word confused but something something that has has um tugged on the morality of that situation yeah zach i'm not sure if this is what you're looking for but when you're talking about these delusions and everything I think about ego and how we can easily delude ourselves into thinking um, that's mine. I can take it or I deserve it because wow. that guy treated me wrong last week. So I'm going to take his cupcake or whatever. <laughs> um, but ego is almost like the ultimate delusion that you can convince yourself of anything. Yeah. So, Oh, that's 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 excellent. Yeah, I agree. I think ego is a major intoxicant, um, and it's something that we all really have to to watch out for because yeah, we'll start it will start really shifting your sense of right and wrong. Um, I, I I wrote something along the same lines because I was like, you know, I, I said I wrote it down as self righteousness. Which is pretty similar. That's all born out of ego, and uh, my dogs are running in and out of the room now. Um, and I was like, "So, what? If I, I could say like, maybe it's okay for me to steal this piece of music, or or this, uh, you know, download this TV show or this thing because um, because I deserve it, and they're all rich jerks." And and I I have clearly clouded my vision here but I've, I've somehow gotten myself to violate a precept and i've done this exact thing so so i i know of whence i speak um how about misusing sexuality which i, I know may be a more tender subject but if anyone has anything i'd love to hear it no <laughs> Oh, yeah, Steve, go ahead. Okay, well, first of all, some context. Um, there was a, I recently found out, um, I think it's been going for a while, but there was a video that went viral where apparently the Dalai Lama, Lama asked a, a child to suck his tongue. I was talking to someone about this just today. Yeah. It was odd. <laughs> I only found out about it a couple of days ago, but I saw that it seems like it's been going around for a while. But uh, I wound up watching the video that's shown in the media and plus one that purports to be the full video with mm -hmm. an explanation by somebody who is um, apparently a Tibetan person who knows a lot about Tibetan culture and context. And so when I saw the short video and read the media reports, I had one reaction, which is just, you know, disgust. Yeah. And then I saw the other video and... I was ready to be skeptical of the explanation of any explanation. By the time I was done with the video um, explaining and putting context in it, I decided, I don't know. If I were on a jury, I would say not guilty because I have a reasonable doubt. Yeah. Um, and 
what was interesting is that that thing around sexuality, my feelings were so strong that that is wrong if he did that to the child. And it's, I didn't even think if I had a little thought of maybe it's out of context, but uh, I quickly dismissed that as thinking, yeah, but it's pretty unambiguous what happened there. Yeah. <laughs> and then seeing all this ambiguity thrown into the situation and um, noticing that how much my emotions had been set on it, how much I was deluded by an idea of it must have been this way right. because of the facts I had at the time, which weren't even all the facts, apparently. Right. But but you you had like all of all of your experience and and kind of how, how you saw the world came in and said, I know that this mm-hmm. is this is a, a, an odd misuse of sexuality. That's right. Yeah, um, it is. It's funny that the, you brought that up. I was talking to someone about this today, and and they were like, "Do do you have any thoughts about this?" And I was like, "No, I don't really know a whole lot about the Dalai Lama." And they were like, "What?" Well, but you're you're Buddhist, right? And I said, "Well, yeah, but it's kind of it's kind of different." And then later, I mentioned like, "Oh, and I'm also giving." Uh, a class on Buddhist ethics tonight, and they're like, "You sure you don't have any opinion on this?" And I was like, "No, I really don't." <laughs> hmm. But thank you, Steve. Yeah, it's a it's a really good example. I was also another thing I was thinking of is, you know, ob- obviously when we think about misusing sexuality, we have a lot of images of that, and and often um alcohol and drugs do play into that sort of thing um but i was thinking about it in terms of uh sort of honoring your relationships and i was thinking well you know what's interesting is i can be disruptive in in my own relationship if i'm irritated about something and it doesn't even necessarily have to be like i'm irritated about something having to do with my partner i might just have some back pain that day and and i can i can lose the sense of of um of you you know sort of sort of the sense of honor of my relationship i get grumpy and I, I will be disruptive and I might might be argumentative. And I, you know, I try not to do that. But at that level, like I've let whatever it was that irritated me cloud my vision of my relationship and 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 cause me to be disruptive of it. And I think that's a way of kind of intoxicating yourself uh, and 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 having it roll into misusing sexuality. Uh, the last one I was going to do uh, was the one that, that Liam just did, which was uh, vowing not to lie. Can anyone have anything of uh, um, of, of so- something that would cause you not to see that clearly? Would per- perhaps cause you to lie uh, because you're viewing it not with the clearest of minds. All right, I'll go with what I wrote down. <laughs> so what if I'm reading a whole bunch of like fairly polarizing kind of polemic news stories and they've upset me, uh, which I do. And and I, I 
should back away from sometimes because it's, it's upsetting and depressing. And I get in a discussion with someone who takes uh, a contrary opinion. But I am so passionate about the things that have stirred me up from reading these stories that I am willing to nudge the truth in my discussion with this other person just to be more right. So there, I think that I've, I've intoxicated myself with news, with media, uh, you know, with these things that flash in our eyes 65,000 times a second so that it makes us appear like we're all moving here. Um, so that was the one example of that I came up with. I was like, that that is a way that I can, my passions can kind of be inflamed in a way that might make me, make me, <laughs> might convince me that it's okay to lie to to win that argument. And I think that's a kind of intoxication that we have to watch out for as well. Anyway, thank you very much. I really appreciate everyone kind of participating in this and 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 playing along. I thought it would be interesting to see what happened if we used uh, this particular precept as a tool to view other precepts. And I think it was kind of neat. So I really appreciate uh, people people uh, being involved in it. Um, I think we got a little bit more time, not too much, but if there's any other questions for me or for Liam, uh, I'd love to hear them. Whoa, nothing, it's settled. Okay, <laughs> Jody. <laughs> um, at, the, at the party, I think it was, maybe it was pre-pandemic, um, the first uh, summer party that I went to, um, I was I had agreed to help um, try to find uh, donations for a wine, even though, you know, it's kind of funny because I don't I haven't drank for a very long time. But I was like, OK, I'll volunteer to help set this up. So um, when I was at Vino Godfather, I think it was to see if I could get a donation for the party. I, I was sitting out there thinking to myself about this precept of intoxication about like we're going to have this party but yet we're going to be serving alcohol. It seems kind of, you know, contradictory to this idea of not intoxicating self or others. And I remember just kind of feeling a little, I, I, I think I took a little joy out of that a little bit like, okay, well, these people aren't perfect. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, clearly like, there's room to like be imperfect around some of this. So anyway, I just wanted to say that. And maybe some of you thought that, maybe you haven't. I just thought it was interesting. No, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I, I, I think that sort of stuff is really helpful. Like as we kind of look at these precepts and 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 have, have to acknowledge to ourselves that we can't live up to them. Um you know, and, and for some of us, uh, there's, there's some that are a little more serious than others, because um, we're in trouble if we don't. But uh, I think I think it's very leveling and humanizing when we all kind of admit, hey, there's some of these that I can do and some of these I suck at. So thank you for that, Jody. Uh, yeah, Kate. Yeah, I've really enjoyed this discussion and the uh, there are so many things 
that we can intoxicate ourselves with, I think, is the broader point. I mean, it's really direct to see drugs and alcohol as a part of it, which I, I agree, I, I think they are, but I don't, I don't exactly think that means abstinence for everyone. And uh, I think that's where people get confused about how strict Zen is and all. They think everybody's vegan and doesn't smoke or <laughs> drink coffee or have a beer now and then. Or I mean, you could say sports are intoxicating. So, um, you, you know, our teacher is a huge A's fan, as I understand. <laughs> but, um, so, and... I, I think another thing that that's pretty can be pervasive is that righteousness. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I remember Mary telling a story about Blanche, and then they were all peace activists, and, and Blanche would tell a story about, you know, I'm for peace, and if you're not, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to kill you. It's that kind of thing, that that kind of righteousness that we don't see are that. The righteousness thing, I think, can be really, really dangerous. Yeah. Uh, I think that's part of what culturally we're experiencing now is like an overabundance of righteousness <laughs> on every side. Um, yeah. So it's it's nice to have the full discussion. And it was it was an interesting exercise to see how those other precepts fed our delusions <laughs> we have a lot of work to do <laughs> thank you yeah we we, uh, we do and we always will and um I, I think i think that's that's part of what's kind of wonderful about this process is that, that that work will always be there we've always got something to keep keep us busy and keep us practicing there's a thing in in um mind of clover when he talks about this precept uh where he talks about being holier than thou and i think that's kind of what you're referring to and he's like we we really need to watch out for that because it pushes people away um it also um you know as zach was talking about the ego is an intoxicant i mean it really evidences that it's like oh man i, I being that kind of self-righteous is is perhaps your ego is an intoxicant Mary calls it Zen snotty. <laughs> That's really good. Oh, anybody else? All right. Well, thank thank you, everybody. I've re I've really appreciated the conversation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Great class, you too. Thank you very much for your presentation. Thank you. Yeah, it's been great, both of you. Thank you. Uh, do you want to leave this out, Steve? Sure. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. <laughs>